Hello, and welcome to the Antioch Fort Worth weekly podcast. At Antioch, our desire is to cultivate a passion for Jesus and his purposes on the earth. To connect with us in community, partner with us through giving, or visit on a Sunday morning, please visit AntiochFortWorth.com. Thank you, thank you. Good morning, Antioch Fort Worth. I am telling you, I love this church. And I know you guys are just getting to know me, but one thing you're going to learn about me this morning. So I've been looking at the weather all week, and I realize that I've been watching the sun and all of that. So I hope this isn't too distracting. I gave it, I showed my, a good friend of mine is my dermatologist, and she gave it the two thumbs up. She said, could I put my logo across the front of it? Anyway, you'll discover I love props, so I'm really not going to wear this, but just for fun. Amazon, where I shop. All right, y'all, we're looking at Mark 11 today, and as I was thinking, woo, come on, come on, Jesus, just fill. I just, yeah, they were praying in pre-service prayer that rivers were going to flow and that winds are going to blow, and it's not the rivers of sweat running down our faces, but it's the rivers of the Holy Spirit, so... As I was thinking about being out here today, preaching outside, I'm reminded of a time decades ago when I was preaching in Brasov, Central Romania. There weren't any tents. It wasn't nearly as high tech. There were no chairs. There were just streets filled with people. And we went from city to city and we set up open air like this. I don't think it was quite as hot, but, and we just preached the good news of the kingdom. And I remember when I got up that day in Brasov, Romania, I talked about John 17, 3. Uh, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And I talked about how eternal life begins when you come to know him. It doesn't start when we leave this earth, that his kingdom has begun. And everyone here today is welcome. Everyone is invited in. No one is excluded. All are welcome. And in Romania, they had been living under a dictator in a kingdom of fear with persecution, oppression, and injustice. And that dictator had been executed, and a new day had dawned. And when they heard this gospel of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, that it was for them, that it was for that day, they responded. And they, y'all, I've never seen anything like it. They came forward. They knelt on cobblestone streets weeping. They entered a new kingdom. They were made new. I've rarely, I don't know, I've never seen harvest of this scope. And I wept as I saw it. And his kingdom grew while we were there and many hearts expanding his reign of self-giving, self-sacrificing, love, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And today, here in Fort Worth, his kingdom still grows, all because of what Jerusalem what Jesus did in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. So let's go to Mark 11, where Jesus is recognized as king in the middle of another oppressive regime. And the title, if you want to give it a title today, is Kingdoms in Conflict. And I want you to notice the contrast of these kingdoms. As we know, as we've learned, Jesus has been journeying to Jerusalem on a long, hot, dusty road. He's come up to 3,000 feet above sea level. 
He now enters Jerusalem and enters the last week of his life. There are three days in this chapter alone. Jesus was busy in Mark 11. So hang on. It's a week of confrontation and of death and resurrection. And there are two prophetic acts that we're going to talk about today that happen on days one and two. And together, these demonstrate the already present kingdom of God and Jesus in conflict with Roman imperial power and the Jewish high priestly collaboration. So let's look at the first day. It was the beginning of Passover, the most sacred week of the Jewish year. And Mark 11 begins with a procession. But before I talk about that procession, I want to talk about another procession that would have taken place on the opposite side of the city around the same time. This was Passover, the celebration of Jews' liberation from an earlier empire. And Pontius Pilate, the the governor of Judea, who had been appointed by Rome, the empire of their day, had come from his home on the coast to make sure nothing got out of hand. And so it was standard practice for Roman governors to come to Jerusalem for the major Jewish festivals. So let's look at, let's imagine what his entry might have been like. It was quite different from that of Jesus. He would have entered Jerusalem at the head of a military procession of Roman soldiers. He was the extension of Caesar and the demonstration of Roman power and authority. His entry would have reminded the pilgrims who is in charge And his entry embodied the glory, the conquest of the great Roman Empire. Now, Rome believed that Caesar was not only the ruler, but also to be worshipped. In the Roman world, as N.T. Wright highlights, the belief in the emperor would have been both obvious and uncontroversial. So the governor enters. He's representing the Jews, oppressors, and a rival theology of worship. Not of Yahweh, but of Caesar. And this kingdom is one of military might and domination and forced worship. So think about the pomp and circumstance. Imagine Pontius Pilate on a glorious, white, majestic stallion, and he's surrounded by cavalry, and he's got all these foot soldiers and armor and weapons and helmets. Y'all have seen the movies, right? You've seen these processions. And can you hear the people shouting? In the, as they line the streets, blessed is the Pilate, the governor of Judea, for he comes in the name of the Lord Caesar. Now at Passover, about 200,000 pilgrims came to Jerusalem. How many of those were gathered to watch Pilate's procession into Rome? Well, we don't know the timing, but what if those who were normally lined up for that procession were at a different procession on the other side of town. Let's look at Mark 11, 1 through 11. And they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're doing this, say the Lord needs it and he'll send it back here shortly. So they went out and found a colt in the doorway tied outside in the street, tied at the doorway. As they untied it, some people asking, standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. 
when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the field. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now think about this entourage. It probably just had some fishermen maybe and some women in the entourage. There's no warhorse or majestic stallion, but an unridden colt. Y'all, you talk about an unmilitary animal, a donkey's colt that has never been ridden. This is deity on a donkey. And this is a humble animal. You are not going to ride a donkey's colt into battle. I don't know. I don't know if any of y'all, has anybody here ever ridden horses? Anybody horseback riders out here? A few. Well, I used to ride. I had a horse growing up. And let me tell you, I have been bucked off of a lot of very well-broken horses. So this colt had never been ridden, and he didn't buck Jesus off. He trusted Jesus. And so Jesus' entry demonstrated the authority, humility, and the peace of his reign. Now, if you look at Mark 11, it's really, it's like, man, a little more than half the verses that are focused on this sec this day one are talking about Jesus and this donkey. Why does Jesus emphasize it? Well, Mark is highlighting for those who read and hear his words, the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in chapter nine, verse nine, where he says, see, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river. Remember that river, y'all. Just imagine that river flowing as we're out here to the ends of the earth. And so he's coming to rule and to reign, not by taking power, or by violence, or by military might, but by vulnerably giving up power and dying. He was murdered because he laid his life down, and he gave his life in obedience to the Father. No one could take it to him. He take it from him. He triumphs. What a contrast. By laying down his might, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that all of us here today, through his poverty, might become rich. He proclaims peace and shalom for all peoples and all nations and all times and the boundaries of his reign to the ends of the earth. At this Passover celebration 2,000 years ago, Zion King, Zion's King arrives and the crowd shouts, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. Now the crowd is quoting Psalm 118, a messianic prophecy. So those who are reading or hearing this would remember the context. And it says, salvation has come. The stone rejected by the builders has become the cornerstone. The significance of his entry was not lost in Jerusalem. So they spread cloaks on the road and they cut branches off the trees. You didn't do this. 
I mean, I've been to a lot of places in the Middle East, and nobody has ever laid cloaks on the road when I came to town. I mean, you didn't do this unless you're welcoming a king. Graydon's message on Palm Sunday really talked through this. It's great. Go listen to it if you hadn't heard it. But Jesus is welcome as king. Now, what did they want and expect? They wanted and expected a warrior king who would come in and overthrow their oppressors and put everything right. But what did they need? A shepherd king who extended forgiveness and reconciliation and the ending of evil. They needed to be put right with him. He didn't come the way they expected to. How many of y'all have discovered? He still does that today. I don't know about y'all. I'll speak for me. He doesn't always come the way that I expect or even the way that I would prefer. So on this first day, we have two radically different kingdoms on display, the kingdom of seizure and the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, one being confronted by the other. Jesus, our, had come. So he looks around the temple, and then he heads back to Bethany, about a mi- one and a half miles away, where he stays with the 12. Now the next day in Mark 11, 12 through 25, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, he entered the temple courts, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he wouldn't allow anyone who was carrying merchandise to travel through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began that day looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, and the whole crowd was amazed by him. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it, was do- it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Now, in this passage, we have another Mark and Sam- sandwich, as Jim Reynolds calls it, like the healing of the blind men. And in chapters 8 and 10. I like to think of it as an Oreo. Um, And this time, the parable of the fig tree is the chocolate Oreo on either side of the temple story. It's dramatic, and it symbolizes what is happening in the temple. So Jesus was hungry, and he sees this tree, and he says to it, hey, no one, may no one find fruit from you again. Those words were meant for the disciples so that they would hear Whenever he does a parable, he gives a teaching, and he curses that fig tree. Now, it seems like he's being really mean to this fig tree. I mean, he said it's not the season for fruit, and it just gets cursed for being a fig tree and doing its thing. 
But what you may not know, and I didn't know this, is that the fig tree bears two kinds of fruit. As the leaves start to come in, a fig tree has these little nubs on it, and they're very good to eat. And so travelers love them. And so a fig tree that has leaves without these little nubs means that it was diseased or dying and that no figs were coming. So, of course, the fig tree was really a parable about what was happened, what was about to happen with the temple system. So he goes from the fig tree to the temple. And let's talk about the temple for just a minute. How are y'all doing? You can get out a hanky and what, wipe and wave. Come on, Jesus. So Jesus goes from the fig tree to the temple. Let's talk about the temple for a minute. I cannot overestimate the importance of the temple in the life of the Jews. The temple, as N.T. Wright says, was the beating heart of Judaism. It wasn't just as it were a street on a corner, a church on a street corner. It was the center of worship and of music, of politics and society, of national celebration and mourning. It was the place of glory and presence, the intersection between heaven and earth, God's space, his dwelling place. It was a place of grace. Sacrifices were made and atonement happened. It was a place of worship and great celebration during feasts and festivals. It was the destination of prince pilgrimage. And this is where it all happened for the Jews. But it wasn't only the house of God on earth in the place of Jewish devotion. It was also the institutional seat of, oh, there it goes, of submission to Rome. I came prepared. I was here when Jamie was, when this happened to him. So the temple, the high priest represented Jews before the day of atonement and then before Rome the rest of the year. And the temple had become the center of political oppression, economic exploitation, and religious justification. We are ordained by God to rule and reign in this system. So there's a tension between this power structure in the temp that was going on in that day in the system of the temple and the hope of Passover. And about 19 BC, Herod the Great had rebuilt and he had greatly expanded the temple. And he added, think of this, y'all, this is big. We can get this in Texas because we like football. He built a, a platform that was five football fields long and three wide. And the largest part of this was the court of the Gentiles. And that's where the sale of animals and money exchange happened. And these were necessary for the functioning of the temple um, because you couldn't bring your lamb or your animal from on pilgrimage. It might not be pure. It might be injured along the way. And one historian says that during Passover week, up to 200, y'all imagine this, 255,000 Passover lambs are bought and sold and sacrificed in the temple court. So all this had to happen, but this system had become corrupt. So what does Jesus do? He drives out the buyers and the sellers. He overturns the money, the tables of the money changers. He overturns the seats of the bird sellers. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So this was a prophetic, symbolic act. Remember the fig tree? That's what this was illustrated. There was no fruit 
And the leadership of the temple was unjust, keeping people down and out, less than marginalized. And then he teaches, my house, y'all got to love this here at Antioch, Fort Worth, shall be called a house of prayer. This is who we are, y'all, for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. This was referenced to Jeremiah's and Jeremiah, who also prophesied at the temple gate. And I just want to, when he prophesied, he said, if you do not listen to what they were doing, and that was then, and it was also in this temple um, system, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, and, in, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? You have made my house a safe place. Think of a bear and a bear's den. It's a safe place for robbers who act unjustly and for revolutionaries. When my house was given to be a house of prayer for all nations, Israel had used its calling This is who we are, y'all, to be a light for the world as an excuse to grow in power, to diminish others, to keep them out, to oppress them and condemn them. So a couple of things are happening here. Uh, Jesus was exposing the system and the injustice that was happening. Jesus was reclaiming his house. And he was also declaring this current temple obsolete for a new temple was here. This one, truly a house of prayer for all nations. And those of us who know Jesus here today are living stones in that temple. The one who came to give his life as a ransom for many was among them. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The signpost of animal sacrifice wasn't needed anymore. Think about it. Jesus had been declaring forgiveness apart from the temple system. Listen to the message in Hebrews 10. As a priest, Christ made a single sacrifice for sins, and that was it. It was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people. Try saying that three times fast. So Jesus forces the hand of the temple leaders, and he implicitly threatens their authority. So at this point, y'all, I mean, there's no neutral response. They either have to crown him or kill him, and they have to accept him or reject him because their authority had been confronted and the injustice had been exposed. And so, really, we know from other that Jesus longed to gather them like a hen does his chicks, but they weren't willing. They did not have eyes to see, and they rose up against him. They didn't accept, (coughs) excuse me, his identity. As Messiah, his authority is king. So they began looking for a way to kill him. And their rejection led to his crucifixion and then to his resurrection. He died by them, and he also died for them. Now the crowd was amazed. So the next day on the way back to the temple, the fig tree was withered. And he teaches in his pattern of parable and teaching, have faith in God. The chief priests and the scribes, they didn't have this faith. They were barren because they refused to believe 
the ones who accept his identity and his authority and surrender to him as king, believe and bear fruit. You guys, we hear that it's, it's open like it was in Brashov so many years ago, ago. We are enabled to bear fruit and to participate in the life and the love of our king and the Trinity. So Jesus' final word is the command to forgive. Let us pray in faith as we forgive others. So Jesus in Mark 11 is radically redefining kingship, is nonviolent, self-sacrificing, enemy-embracing love. Think about that. It is nonviolent, self-sacrificing, enemy-embracing love. And it got him killed. Jew and Gentile representing religion and empire joined together as one to condemn him to death. Theologian Greg Boyd writes, I know it's a little hot out here for theology, but listen to this, man. The crucial distinction between the two kingdoms is how they provide antithetical answers to the questions of what power one should trust to change ourselves and others. And this is a question for us today. Do you trust power over or power under? Do you trust the power of the sword, the power of eternal force, or do you trust in the influential but non-coercive power of Calvary-like love? So Jesus didn't overthrow his enemies that day. Those who opposed him, he was crucified by them and for them, and he overcame death. Y'all, the kingdom of God is like no other kingdom. This kingdom is our hope. And if we are being faithful to our king and his kingdom, our obedience will lead to a collision with the kingdoms of this world. I'm sure you could all testify to that. I have lots of stories about that. We live in a world that's often hostile to our message and to our king even in our own, increasingly so, I would say, in our own country. So which kingdom will we submit to? Which way will we follow? Y'all, it's not a one and done. I wish I could say, oh, I made that decision however many years ago, and I want to date myself. But that was it, and I've submitted ever since. No, I love what Jamie says. We leaks. We leak. It's a daily, Jesus, you're my king, and you're my Lord. It's a hourly, it's a minute sometime when I'm in conversation. I find something rising up inside of me. I'm sure that doesn't happen to y'all, but it happens to me. And y'all, we live in tense times. There's a social scientist, Arthur Brooks, who writes about our culture's crisis of contempt and outrage and how easy it is to become against. It's easy to get in enemy, enemy mode, kind of where something rises up inside and you want to break relationship or take control or just be right. I mean, I like to be right. I, you know, anyway. Are we willing to suffer with Jesus and follow him in the way of his kingdom, following and loving our king, increasing in wisdom and revelation of the true knowledge of him, it is so vital in these days. We have kingdoms and conflict all around us. And who is our king? And let me tell you, his kingdom is nothing like the kingdoms of this world. His kingdom 
is unshakable, invincible, immutable, and incorruptible. His kingdom will never fade away, and our king will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He'll empower us. He'll walk with us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The Father affirms us. His mercies are new every morning. This is our king. Have y'all heard that sermon? This is my king, man. Anyway, this is our king. And our king, as I look out and see everybody here today, and I can't see y'all, but I know you're there. As I look out, Jesus is delighted in you. The Father adores you. He is here with you. The Holy Spirit wants to fill you, empower you. He indwells you. This is the kingdom that we live in. So let's stand together. What time is it? Boy. Oh, I went. Okay. Have our worship team and prayer team. I think I got, oh, I was quick today. In Daniel 7, 14, it says, And to him, the Messiah, was given dominion, supreme authority, glory in a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and speakers of every language should serve and worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So Matthew tells us that after Jesus interrupted the temple activity, that the blind and the lame came to him. He healed them. The children cried Hosanna in the temple courts. And he is inviting us. Our king is here today. And he is inviting us to come and to pray. Whatever your need is, he wants to meet you. He is the one for whom the impossible becomes possible. Maybe you need to acknowledge his kingship in an area of your life. You're thinking of an area or a place where you may act in the spirit of another kingdom. I can easily get triggered into enemy mode and to not love and want to go high and not low. And I'm like, Jesus. And then he invites me to repent. Do you know that Dallas Willard says what it really, when we look like Jesus, this is a high bar. We spontaneously love our enemies. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I'm not there yet. But I want to look more like Jesus and spontaneously love my enemies. And so Jesus invites us to come today. And I just invite you to come and to pray with whatever your need might be that, that his kingdom fulfills and meets. Maybe in the not, not the way that you expect or would like, but he meets our every need and his kingdom increases in our lives. And if we need to, maybe at the end of this, Jesus declared forgiveness. If you have something against anyone, forgive. Maybe you'd like to come and agree in prayer with someone. I forgive this person. And so let's come today. People are up here. We're just going to take a little time. You can pray in your hearts. You can come today and pray with someone, whatever your need. The kingdom is open wide. Maybe you don't know the king. If you don't know the king, today is a great day. Just like they did in Brashoff, 
You don't have to kneel down on the asphalt. You can just come and you can stand and say, Jesus, would you be my king? And he'll come and he'll save you and he'll, you'll enter into a new kingdom reign, one that is our hope. So come, please come and we'll just take a minute to worship and yeah.